0: Dr. Dale on Quail, bringing you the latest news and views about all things quail in Texas. Brought to you by the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, preserving the wild quail hunting heritage of Texas for this and future generations. Major support for this podcast comes from Gordian Sons Outfitters. Well, hello everybody and welcome to Dr. Dale on Quail. I appreciate you taking time to join us today. What a terrific topic to be talking about, and as always, our special guest, Dr. Dale Rollins. Hello, Dale.
1: Good morning, Gary, and uh, yeah, we've got a topic that, uh, on the economics of quail, what's a quail worth? And I would like to give a caveat emptor, uh, let the buyer beware. If, If your wife or significant other, or bookkeeper is listening, you may wanna mute this and listen to it while you're on the road, because we're gonna be basically saying, how much do quail hunters spend on quail hunting, and some of the figures are gonna surprise you, I promise you.
0: Well, I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau, and this is always a topic of interest because quail is an investment from a personal standpoint, and I think from a state resource standpoint, it's definitely got economic value. And you have a special guest with us today to help you with that.
1: Absolutely, I'm uh, proud to have a a colleague of mine for many years, Dr. Jason Johnson. Dr. Johnson is an extension economist with Texas Texas A&M AgriLife Extension. Welcome Jason we're proud to have you here today. Thank you Dell. And why don't we start off by you giving us a little, a little bit of your background. What's your, what's your pedigree look like?
2: Well I'm a extension, like you said, I'm an extension economist with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension. I've uh, been in that role for about 23 years working primarily with farmers and ranchers um, looking at ways to to be more profitable and efficient in their operations. Um, my personal background, though, is I'm a fifth generation rancher from Jack County, Texas, and so hopefully I can um, bring a little bit of that multi-generational ranch ownership perspective um, when I work with, with individuals because I'm looking at things more than just the dollars and cents.
1: Well, again, and you started your career out there in San Angelo, uh, and so I got to, know with, got to know you and work with you. Jack County, Texas, the uh, home of 4-H, corn clubs, a lot of history in that respect. And I'm gonna mention Jack County about another experience here in a little while. But I've been working with Jason since I think about 1999 and I had the opportunity to spend several hours and projects with him. And our program today is gonna really look at the economics of quail hunting through three different lenses. One is the quail hunters one is the landowners and one is community as far as economic impact and we started some work uh, jason and i did back in 2000. back then instead of quail coalition it was quail unlimited in texas and we interviewed 250 texas quail unlimited members so that was our population and we basically asked them several questions but one is how much did you spend in pursuit of your hobby quail hunting in 1999 and this is where you may not want your wife to know because the average at that time was $10,354 spent in pursuit of their hobby and with that I'm going to ask Jason to elaborate a little bit we, we did a subsequent electronic survey in 2011 basically a longitudinal survey to see if anything had changed so Jason what are some of the highlights that you bring to the table from those surveys
2: well and 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 we did update that survey and found out that it had fallen off all the way down to only $8,600 for the particular year in 2010. And just to kind of contrast, contrast that, in the state of Texas, the, the most recent data that was published, the average Texas hunter spends about $1,600 per year. Um, that's deer hunter, turkey hunter, small game. So the quail hunters that, that we surveyed and responded back to us spent five to six times more than the average hunter. About 35% of that money was spent on lease fees and land access. Dog-related expenses accounted for about 12% of that, and that's one of those categories that is particular to, to bird hunters. And then transportation, travel, and vehicles on site, Those. Those tied for about 11% each of expenditures.
1: And as I recall from the, at least the, the uh, earlier survey, which I tend to put a little more, more weight on because our sample size was quite a bit bigger, on that one, uh, the average quail hunter had like six dogs. And they spent an average of like $1,400 or so per year on dog-related fees. And I thought, whoo! I hope my wife didn't hear that and I'm below the norm because I only have four bird dogs but uh, when you begin to add up the vet fees and everything else the dog food yeah you know it adds up in a hurry and like I said that's something that a deer hunter doesn't think about but uh, they are essential to the enjoyment of quail hunting.
2: And, and you're, you're right on track there the uh, when we did the survey the average respondent back to us still owned three bird dogs And in fact, the majority of the hunters did still own bird dogs. And really what that shows is it shows an ongoing commitment to bird hunting.
1: And that takes some faith because again, at the time of that 2011 survey, we'd gone through a couple of years, really after 2008, we were in the doldrums. And anytime you go through a period of three or four years of tough times, and we're in one of them right now for most of us in West Texas, it tests the it tests the faith of the individuals and the outlook and so forth. And then our quail hunting community is getting old. I mean it is an old community. I'm sixty five and I'm probably below the mean as far as what the age is. So you get people that, you know, are eighty years old and bless their hearts. Uh Artificial knees and artificial hips and Kawasaki mules have uh, sustained the life of a lot of quail hunters still. I'm always proud to see those that are that age and I tell them two things. One is I hope when I'm your age I'm still hunting quail and I still hope I'm hunting as well as you are kind of thing. So always proud to see those people. Jason I got to relate to you one thing. After after we did this in uh, 2000, I spoke at the Quail Unlimited Convention in Dallas, Texas in 2002 as I recall. And I presented these data and boy, you know, when you begin to tell people how much money that the average person spends and you kind of duck your head and want to walk backwards. And when I got through, it was right before break. And so at the break, here comes two big burly guys come walking down the aisle very quickly towards me. I thought, I'm about to get a do better talk on something here. And they come up to me and they said, you know, you listed what you spend on travel and dogs and equipment, but you left out one whole cost category. And I said, well, what was that? And he said, well, while we're out there at Ash Vermont and Fowl Furious, our wives are at Neiman Marcus. He had me. So uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's uh, it, different subcultures kind of thing, and, and the quail hunting community is certainly one of those subcultures. One of the things that when we defined how much a person spends, what the average quail hunter spent in 1999, I calculated what the cost per bird was. Now, this is pretty interesting. The, the average cost per quail put in the bag was $254. That's $32 an ounce, so I referred to it thereafter as quail escargot and so anytime you're dining on, on a wild quail you are eating a very uh, expensive and very uh, very much in demand kind of a meat and i often say that uh, don't let this get you down it it, can, it, it doesn't confine it doesn't um, parlay into jason's view of the economics necessarily it's what i call garden economics we all garden and we all know that we could go down to H-E-B and buy a tomato better and less expensive than we can grow. So why do we garden? We garden for the recreational aspects of it. And, that, and that's really key, isn't it, Jason?
2: Yes, and it's really no different than other sporting activities. I doubt very seriously if most of the fishermen in this state would want to try to justify, based on a dollar per ounce of the fish they caught, the total expenditures they made while fishing and if we accounted for all of the rods and reels and, and boats and, and travel and transportation I think it would be the same thing. We're talking about an experience not a product.
1: Just don't try to justify the cost of your recreation using traditional economics is what we're saying there. Let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the economic impacts Jason and uh, maybe starting with the landowners because uh, obviously if you're in West Texas or in South Texas for sure we still have viable quail hunting populations that that, that's a very tangible value of quail as relates to the landowners through those hunting leases.
2: Well and we talked about how ownership of bird dogs represented an ongoing commitment of the hunters to to pursuing the quail hunting experience. We can see that translate into land ownership as well. Um, When we surveyed those hunters in 2010, 18% of them had actually purchased property in the previous 10 years, specifically to quail hunt. 33% of those respondents leased one property, and about 17% of the quail hunters had leased multiple properties to quail hunt. So like you were saying, in in a time and a situation where The weather may not be conducive to great quail hunting activity in one region. We had 17% of these respondents that had responded to that by hedging and buying or or leasing properties in different parts of the state just to guarantee them the best chance of having a quality quail hunting experience. So it definitely uh, translates into land values.
1: It's a little bit like the stock market. You don't buy just stocks in one thing. You try to diversify that portfolio. And and the savvy quail hunters, the savvy well-heeled quail hunters that can afford to have uh, properties in several parts of the state. And yeah, back in that 2000 and uh, 2000 survey, some of them had four leases. And I thought, my gosh, I've got three leases today. <laughs> <laughs> Dale,
2: Dale, I think it goes I think it goes back to our, our previous discussion about the, the quail hunting being an experiential activity and and what that means is different for every individual. Um, you know a lot of individuals may seek quail hunting and say I just want land access, I want to enjoy it as a solitary activity and watch my, my dogs work, whereas other people want to look at it as a community activity and a group activity and, and um, have a lot of those amenities provided to them, dogs, hunter, uh, dogs, uh, guides, vehicles to assist them. Um, there's a lot of different ways to define what a quality quail hunting experience is. And, and that definition is individual from, from one hunter to, to the other. You know, a lot of people, when we talk about trying to put dollars on these things, we can put dollars on the money that they spend but we can't put dollar values on what that's worth to them. And we find out that when people talk about quail and that hunting experience, it's not just the number of birds bagged, it's other things like quality time spent with family and friends, the opportunity to watch those bird dogs work that they've been feeding all year, maybe just opportunity to practice their shooting skills, or even as simple as escaping to a rural environment. And you and I have talked in the past about how during this pandemic, we've seen that be an ever more increasingly marketable product is the opportunity to, to escape into that rural atmosphere where you weren't so confined and congested.
1: Absolutely. Uh, it, and with some of this cooler weather we've had recently, I stepped out the door this particular morning. It's 52 degrees in San Angelo. And the dogs back there on my back half of my property, they knew I was outside, and they thought, "Hey, the heat's over. We're going quail hunting day." They let me know all about it. They probably weren't wasn't happy when I backed out of the driveway. So again, we've talked a lot, you know, talked about the expenses involved with this. And again, sometimes you think, Whoo, I better sit down and rethink my uh, recreation." And I, I'm reminded of the old Mastercard. Uh, commercial that's you know begin to enumerate what the cost of the trip was and the cost of the food and so forth but then it said the value priceless and uh, that's what keeps us quail hunters uh, moving forward again are those opportunities and I understand that there's more business deals struck on the back of a tailgate of a pickup or in a hunting rig in South Texas on a quail hunt than there is any kind of hunting so again quail hunting by nature can be a social sport much more so than say deer hunting is and the opportunities to uh, kill several birds with one stone are certainly there. I want to move uh, from the landowner to the uh, communities and again the Rolling Plains Quill Research Ranch is located in Roby, Texas. Now, You don't just find yourself to Roby, Texas. There's not a whole lot driving the economy in uh, Roby, Texas but there is a sign that I bet many of you have seen just west of Sweetwater on I-20 that says Roby, Texas, quail capital of Texas. And so there are some small communities, Roby would be one of them, places like Hebronville that really value quail and the bucks, not the deer, but the dollars that quail bring to that community. So uh, Jason, again, using some of these data that we collected and you helped me out a number of years with our youth program, the Bob White Brigade, and you came up with this scenario, this little skit, if you will, called Show Me the Money. Tell us about what Show Me the Money was designed to do. Well, Show
2: Me the Money was designed to basically illustrate the money trail from, that, that is left from the hunter to the landowner. A lot of times people think that, well, the biggest beneficiary of hunting in, in the state of Texas is the landowner. And the landowner is a, is a tremendous beneficiary because in the state, 95% of the state is privately owned. If you want to hunt any species, land access typically goes through the, the, the landowner. But what we were trying to illustrate with the Show Me the Money program was the fact that the landowner isn't the only beneficiary here. We have a hunter who typically comes From an urban area the majority of texas hunters come from an urban area and if you think about that hunting represents one of those very rare activities where money flows from an urban area into a rural area you know in the state of texas we have football friday nights and that's typically one rural area transferring money to another rural area as they move through their district schedules uh, that's a lot of times. That's the one of the more visible um, economic development uh, and, and, and tra- uh, hospitality activities we see. But with hunting, we have a large number of hunters coming from urban areas, injecting money all the way down the road as they they tra- as they travel from their home to these rural areas where the hunting opportunities exist. So they have to buy a hunting. Li- they have to buy a hunting license. The landowner has to buy a lease license there's ammunition there's equipment that's purchased all of the things to get ready for the trip then there's travel expenses food gas lodging um, uh, that that takes place in route to the hunting trip and then there's those expenses that are incurred at the hunting destination and that's in the rural area many times that is lodging that is food Sometimes it's ancillary equipment depending on what's available. So there is a nice little money trail that that follows the hunter from their urban homes into these rural hunting, uh, hunting uh, outlets.
1: And what a powerful argument that is. I, I often said I wish that the Commissioner's Court or the County Economic Development Board in, in a lot of our rural counties could have 15 people, because it takes about 15 people to, to play this little uh, this little game, if you will, and to show that, because I mean, our philosophy is at Bob White Brigade, tell me and I forget, show me and I remember, involve me and I understand, and it involves all those people. And again, very vividly paints that money trail from Dallas to Aspermont if you will, or wherever the case may be. You talked about, uh, you know, who are the big winners, and I think it's basically the suppliers uh, in the Fort Dallas-Fort Worth area, the academies and uh, various outlets like that uh, that are the biggest winners, but who are some of the other winners in that, Jason?
2: Well, some of the less obvious winners are, are those merchants and those taxing entities for municipalities that lie en route. And, you know, when they stop to get gas, Uh, On the way to the hunt, they're going to stop, they're going to run in the convenience store, they're going to spend some money, a portion of that money is is held at that local level. Um, The other winners are anyone who can provide those needed uh, services and amenities to the hunters once they get on site. And we've seen a a very large increase in the uh, economic activities and, and potential profits to be had by providing those services um providing trained hunting dogs once on site providing those guiding activities the fact of the matter is if if the landowner or or merchants at the hunting destination want to get a bigger slice of the hunter's expenditure pie then they have to look at what types of activities and amenities they can provide and when when Uh, hunters specifically quail hunters are spending eighty six hundred nine thousand dollars per year on their hunting activities Um, they're obviously indicating that they're willing to pay for the hunting experience to be more pleasurable to them so there it opens the door for a lot of activities and amenity service providers at the hunting destination
1: and you mentioned earlier but about sixty percent as I recall of the dollars that are spent are spent in the destination county and again when you get to fisher county there's not too many revenue streams coming in again from urban to rural so again an economic injection a real shot in the arm and they feel it when we're down as far as our quail population did because as the quail populations go so go the hunters but anytime and i'd like to tell this to all the chambers of commerce anytime you see that Pick up coming in with a dog box, those two orange caps, that's probably worth about ten or $12,000 to your local community, tip your cap to them.
2: Well, and, and not only that, but with just like any other tourism activity, those individuals come in, they spend their three days or four days there, they drop their money, and then they leave. So they may be putting some pressure on the local infrastructure for a couple of days, but they're providing money to help support that infrastructure for the rest of the year.
1: And one of the things I've heard you say is, uh, from the, again, the local small towns, which these typically are, is the restaurants that close at seven o'clock. Sometimes they ought to keep their hours a little, long, a little longer. maybe.
2: Absolutely, the, 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 the potential to reap benefits is only as good as the availability of those services. And, and I've never understood in this state, and, and specifically with deer hunters, on the opening weekend of deer season, I don't understand why every rural Texas community restaurant doesn't stay open until 10 or 1030 at night. Um, you know, if a hunter shot something, he wants to come to town and brag about it. And usually if they, if they shot something and, and field dressed it, they wanna, you know, they're, they're tired, they just want to eat, they want to come in. Uh, and, and there's so many places that roll up the sidewalks at eight o'clock at night, no matter what time of year it is, and, and I think they're really missing the boat. Same can be said for these rural destinations and quail hunters. Look at the activities that these hunters might be interested in doing and then make it as easy as possible for them to, to take advantage of
1: those. Okay, I want to switch gears a little bit going away from the, the expenses of quail hunting to another effort that you and I have spent quite a bit of time and you've got a lot of expertise in, and that's on the cow-quail conflict. Uh, anybody that's in the that's owned those four quail leases or whatever probably has been burned at some point in their career by paying a good bit of money and they get there and the place is overgrazed. And I want to give you two quotes that uh, to me encapsulate the whole cow-quail continuum. The first is by a former uh, outfitter down there in South Texas, he passed away several years ago, Terry Lee. Uh, Terry Lee told our initial Quail Masters class back in 2005, talking about leasing and the, the the competition between cows and quails, he he said this, and I quote, when they take your lease check and buy round bales, you know you're in trouble, end quote. Think about that, because if if he's having to buy round bales, that tells him that he's out of grass, and if you're out of grass, that's not a good situation for quail. And then my second quote is by our current president of our uh, Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, Justin Trail from Albany. Justin's quote says this, cows are easy to get on and hard to get off. And I want to talk more about that as we talk about a grazing agreement between one of these absentee landowners and how you can try to keep yourself from getting in a bind in that situation. I want to take you back to your home county, uh, Jason, Jack County. I was up there in 1995 on a program out in the field. It was a dry year. Every place looked pretty hard. My talk was on quail and I first asked the group, probably 60 people, I said, who's mad at quail? Not a hand was raised. I said, well, if nobody's mad at quail, why does, it, why does your country look like it does? Because it looks like somebody is mad at quail. In other words, the, the country was grazed too heavily, which is always a touchy subject, but it's also a very pervasive uh, problem in our uh, quail management in Texas. And I had to remind them of my preacher Paul: you're free to choose your actions, but you're not free to choose the consequences. So I want to talk some about that cows and quail conflict, if you will. Uh, and start off with talking about the economics of grazing on rangeland. And with that, I'd like some some feedback from you, Dr. Johnson.
2: Well, you know, and it's easier said than done. And like I said, I'm a fifth generation rancher and I'm prone to make the same mistakes any other um, greedy livestock producer may be making in terms of trying to um, not be willing to give up some short-term concessions when I ought to. but what strikes me is and and after 23 years of looking at rangelands all across the state and working with ranchers in their in their attempts to be profitable and and pass the ranch on to the next generation the one thing that stands out more than anything else to me is that a low to moderate stocking rate is not only the most profitable strategy from a livestock production standpoint but it is very much compatible with the habitat needs and considerations for, for wildlife species such as quail. Um, and, and Dale, you and I were talking about this earlier. If 2011 has taught us anything as livestock producers, it's reiterated the fact that a, a conservative to moderate stocking rate with some flexibility is, is the most profitable way to pursue Uh, livestock profitability those individuals in 2011 who went into 2011 stocked to their carrying capacity of their land quickly found themselves overstocked and they reacted in one of two ways both cost them a lot of money they either provided supplemental feed to those animals because they were too stubborn to sell or those animals had names and had become pets that was a very costly proposition. The other alternative was to load some livestock and take those to the local auction barn. And in the middle of the drought, everybody else was having to do the same thing. Cattle prices were depressed and they lost money on that end. Um, A much better strategy is to be light to moderately stocked, to have that flexibility and to be proactive when Mother Nature tends to not cooperate. The other alternative, the other benefit of that light to moderate stocking rate is that it allows the habitat to to portray characteristics that are very positive for wildlife. Having a little brush, having some some nesting sites for the birds, uh, it, that becomes a win-win situation. The other economic aspect of that is that cattle, as we all as we all know tends to be very cyclical, you know, whether we're looking at a 10 or 15 year cattle cycle from boom to bust, um, we see cattle prices go up. When everybody's making money and profitable and the banker has cows, um, that's probably the sign of a top and then people start letting, you know, prices go down and eventually it becomes unprofitable. The wildlife component is a really nice opportunity to provide a buffer specifically during those times when the cattle market is low. And it's it's shown the hunting revenues have tended to show a lot more resiliency in in the face of droughts and and low prices. So to me, if anything, 2011 taught us the fallacy and how much it costs to not be lightly or moderately stocked. And just like any other market, whether it's the livestock market or the stock market, we tend to repeat mistakes every 10 to 12 years. The further we get removed from the drought of the 20, 2011, I'm afraid some of those lessons have started to to, to slip in our memories.
1: Real quickly, Jason, uh, at least your project group, the Ag Economics Group at Texas a used to have a database called the SPA database. I don't know if you, I don't hear much talk about that anymore, maybe out of the circle. Standardized Performance Analysis Database. And could you give us a couple of nuggets there from that basically said, these cow calf producers are going to be profitable, these are not?
2: Yeah, that was a project that one of my colleagues, Stan Beavers, really took ownership on. He sat down with livestock producers and tabulated very detailed records on their livestock production numbers and inventory numbers as well as their financial records in terms of costs for feeding and, and labor so that he could look and blend the two to figure out what some of the characteristics of the profitable operations were as well as what were some of the characteristics of the unprofitable operations. And when we took that database, and, and, and these weren't what I would consider average livestock producers because an average livestock pr- producer probably can't sit down and give you three years worth of financial records on every aspect of their operation. These were above normal uh, in terms of pr- uh, profitability probably. But we broke the, that group down into quartiles, the most profitable 25 percent. The least profitable 25 percent, and those in the middle, and you know, not surprisingly, cattle production is a commodity business. It's a very, very, very low-margin business. In fact, about half the livestock producers that were in this project were not profitable if you counted for all of their ex- expenditures. Half of them were were, uh, were profitable, but the the vast majority of the producers. Probably netted out less than about $2 an acre in terms of profitability. And again, when feed prices rise and fall and cattle prices rise and fall, you know, there's some years where that picture is a little better than others, but you know, no matter when you look at it, typically we'd see about half the producers profitable and half unprofitable.
1: And I would take that opportunity to just basically tell. Them or suggest to ranchers that there are other opportunities for your land. And if you can, again, cut your stocking rate some, then you go from using or having cows and quail at the same time to using cattle as a, and grazing as a tool for quail habitat management, especially at the lighter end of that stocking rate curve. I encourage our readers to Google stocking rate rangelands, and you'll find a nice diagram there. something that we can't vividly uh, described uh, via the podcast but look at that and study that there's a lot of quail and cattle management and stocking rates and so forth as you relate to that on that stocking rate curve. One of the most basic uh, graphs that you get if you've ever had any training in range management. Uh, Jason just the last thing we've got again 18 or 20 percent of those landowners that have bought country they've owned it now and somebody wanted to put cows out there most of it's gonna be in a leasing situation or maybe in a leasing situation. How do they keep from getting burned in terms of leased cattle?
2: Well, the lease is a very important tool because it can send a message as to how the landowner wants the land managed or how he's willing to have the land managed. And, and typically, and, and unfortunately, the most common lease in the state from a livestock standpoint is probably a one year dollar per acre lease from a from a environmental standpoint a forage management standpoint that's a very very poor basis to have a lease Uh, a one-year lease uh, incentivizes the the person running it to take every blade of grass on the place and then worry you know it's somebody else's problem next year so we would want to advocate longer leases and if you're if you got a three year or a five year grazing lease, you're going to tend to treat that properly better because you're going to be there for the next two to five years. The other the other aspect is is changing from a dollar per acre to maybe a dollar per animal unit basis, so that when the forage gets depleted to a certain level that the cattle aren't gaining weight or maintaining their body conditioning score, the incentive is to move them off of that pasture and let the pasture re- regroup. So remember that the lease will send the incentive for how the land will be
1: treated by the tenant. Well, again, you've got a world of information there that, uh, that is a very much a part of our quail equation as we think about that. So again, thank you for your time today. Uh, we'll may have you back on at some point in time so we can delve a little bit more into some of those economics, or maybe we won't, because sometimes they're tough for us <laughs> to look at and we may not really want to know. But uh, with that Gary, I'm going to turn it back to you and we'll wrap this up.
0: Thank you Dr. Dale and thank you uh, Dr. Jason Johnson for your time today, your expertise. I learned about the value of quail and what a quail's worth and I appreciate that good information. I hope you find value in the Dr. Dale on Quail podcast. We appreciate your time listening with us today. If you Like to know more about this program, previous episodes, and all the good work at the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, I encourage you to go to quailresearch.org. There you'll find archived podcast episodes and other details about Dr. Rollins and his team's research and the good work they're doing in Fisher County. With that, I'm Gary Joyner of the Texas Farm Bureau wishing you a good day. Until next time. Support from Gordian Sons Outfitters makes Dr. Dale on quail possible. Gordian Sons, the finest hunting and fly fishing shop to be found. Find out more at gordiansons.com.